This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. A lot of us don't really choose to come to Australia. We we are forced to come to Australia. Australia is a country of immigrants. Every single human being has the right to safety. But politics has always influenced who gets to come here and who's excluded. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Australia accepts large numbers of migrants, but has significantly changed the people it is willing to let stay here. We make it easy for temporary migrants to come here, but very hard for highly skilled permanent migrants. We've got the whole thing backwards. Now the Albanese government is promising to create more permanent pathways, which may help some refugees and Pacific Islander workers to reunite with their families. So how did we get to this point? And how much of our attitudes on immigration really changed? Today, the history and future of immigration in Australia. It's Monday, the 30th of January. If you want to immigrate to Australia, there are three main pathways. First, there's a humanitarian visa for refugees fleeing persecution from their home countries. My name is Liliana Maria Sanchez. I am 39 years old. I was born in Santiago, Chile. I was four years old when I first arrived to Australia in the year 1988. We arrived to Melbourne, Victoria. Liliana's parents were political activists when Chile was under the rule of Pinochet's military dictatorship. Just before I was uh, born, my parents were organising one of the biggest protests of the time in my home country, along with other uh, people from the community. She says one of her parents' friends was captured and tortured and gave their names up to the regime. So I was a couple of days old. We were at my grandmother's house when uh, military came quite early in the morning at about 5am to take both of my parents, really. And um, so when they did come in to take both of my parents, my mother obviously had me a premature baby in her arms. However, my mother sort of argued with them. They let her go uh, and they proceeded to take my father um, during that time. So my father uh, ended up being a political prisoner for, um, he was sentenced to four years. Liliana's mum took care of her children on her own while supporting other families who'd also lost loved ones to the regime. She continued this fight in the community to support now women with, you know, who had lost their husbands or their sons or um, other family members through this dictatorship. Uh, And through this process of, you know, um, fighting for also my father's freedom, she discovered a loophole. That loophole was a law that enabled prisoners to be released early if they could prove their good behaviour in prison. Liliana says her mother took her father's case to Chile's then Minister for Justice and won. He served three years out of the four-year sentence. 
um, my father was released, but my home country was um, under civil unrest. My father was still under investigation, so there was still um, secret police always sort of threatening both of my parents and my family uh, during that time, uh, and so we weren't safe. Even though Liliana was too young then to understand why her father was taken away from her, she still remembers the violence and the fear of living under the dictatorship. And I had severe um, separation anxiety from both my parents um, and I didn't understand that, but I had consistent nightmares um, that someone comes in the middle of the night to take my family. And so I was always in fear. Um, Another thing that I have um, memories of is being in bed at night and my brother and I had bunk beds um, and he had the top bunk and I had the bottom bunk and we heard uh, the military firing rounds outside and, you know, my brother just sort of got up and a bullet came through the window and straight past my uh, brother's head and there were still marks of the bullet hole on the wall. So it had just missed him as we woke up while that was happening. So I was incredibly terrified of people with guns, uh, terrified of the military. Liliana's parents started looking for humanitarian visas that could get them out of Chile. A year later, they brought their family to Australia. So I think as a whole, my family, we all knew that we were going to safety and that was an exciting idea, this whole new place. But we didn't know anything about Australia. We didn't know the language. We didn't have networks or community. But when we arrived, um, we arrived to a hostel, uh, which was set up to receive um, people who were like us uh, from a refugee background or humanitarian background from different parts of the world. Um, We had, you know, the first day there, we had this amazing breakfast and all these cereals and fruits. And but also it was so um, dark and gloomy, our experience in our home country. And now you have like even... This idea of many fruits for breakfast was like colourful and bright and and happy Um, and everything was was exciting. Um, My brothers went straight to school. Um, My parents went straight to uh, English school and I was in a childcare with kids from all around the world. Liliana's family had never planned to settle in Australia. They'd always hoped to return home when it was safe to do so. So in 1995, they did return to Chile. But as a former political prisoner, her father's rights were severely limited. They found their family still wasn't safe and their humanitarian visa to Australia was about to expire. So after three years of trying to make it work in Chile, the family decided they should move back to Australia for good. But Liliana voted to stay in Chile. It was the first time in my life that I actually felt like I belonged. Um, So I, yeah, I didn't really want to come back. I guess I was still young in terms of not understanding all of the dangers of staying. And I, I was really happy in my school and my, with my new friends, my, you know, culture. 
In the end, they did move back, this time to Brisbane, where Liliana's parents found successful careers in nursing and welding. And Liliana went on to start a career in anthropology and a consultancy in refugee storytelling. Um, And so, I mean, you know, you're still in Queensland. It's been many years since then. You've grown up. How are you feeling about your life here in Australia and your future in Australia now? I'm Australian citizen, but I will never really be considered an Australian, even though I've spent most of my life here. And in Chile, I'm considered a Aussie <laughs> because I haven't lived there. I I can't speak to you with the slang or colloquialisms of my home country because you know, I'm, I haven't grown up in that space, um, but I really love and value the Chilean culture um, and really love and value the Australian culture and somehow I exist in the middle of both of those. Australia's first refugee policy was created in 1977. This was in response to the many people fleeing countries like Vietnam and Cambodia after the Vietnam War in the 70s, and many others fleeing Chile and European countries in the 80s. What was sort of the political climate for people who came on humanitarian visas at that time? Of course, these refugees came from a conflict zone in which Australian men were combatants, you know, and it was incredibly unpopular war. And so I think there was an understanding um, of why these people were fleeing Vietnam. Dr. Rachel Stevens is an immigration historian and research fellow at the Australian Catholic University. She's also the author of a book called Immigration Policy from 1970 to the Present. I think, you know, thinking of in terms of the Cold War at the time, you know, these refugees were fleeing communism. And at the time that really resonated, I think, with a lot of people, even very politically conservative people. But I would say there was a lot of concern about the arrival of refugees by boat. And so there is little appetite. There's never been an appetite for um, settling, I guess, asylum seekers, if you want to use that word. I mean, it's important to know that this humanitarian intake has barely changed in terms of the sheer numbers of visas. So generally speaking, the number of humanitarian visas has hovered around between 13 and, say, 17,000 people, um, which, you know, given the, the sheer number of people seeking asylum in the world, which by current estimates it's around 90 million people, and my, my research tells me 41% of those are children aged under 18, so 90 million people around the world seeking resettlement in a third country and Australia is still taking um, only sort of 15,000 humanitarian um, visas or issuing such visas per year, which really doesn't reflect the situation we live in in the current world. The second big pathway for immigration is known as family reunification. This allows Australians to sponsor their overseas relatives, often a spouse, to come join them. I was one of many that benefited from this category because after my parents immigrated to Australia from Malaysia in the 70s, they were able to sponsor a number of our relatives to come over. And that meant that I was able to grow up with many of my extended family in the same place. In fact, in the mid-80s, family reunification was the main component of Australia's migration program. At the time, it made up two-thirds of all visas. 
So, Rachel, what was the thinking behind this at the time? So, in the late 1970s, a lot of um, Southern European migrant communities lobbied very effectively the then Fraser government to increase um, visas for family migrants um, to, to reunify. And you know, I think the Fraser government, Fraser especially himself, was very sympathetic to the compassionate grounds for allowing people to reunify with their family members who are stuck overseas. And that compassionate understanding of the migrant and what their needs might be continued on um, during the early years of the Hawke government. So there was this very generous understanding of who could be considered a close relative. So the demand very much came from the migrant communities themselves and their politicians Mm -hmm. at that point uh, were very responsive to that, to that lobbying. And that unfortunately wasn't to last. Which brings us to the third pathway for immigration to Australia. State governments and employers can sponsor professionals to come and fill skill shortages like nursing or engineering or teaching. And so we see in in the late 1980s, greater influence of uh, various business groups in terms of what they need in terms of their skills shortages. And we see really, I guess, the prevalence and influence of economic rationalism as a political idea in government in Australia. Mm. Talk me through some of that economic rationalism. I mean, when that shift starts to happen, we see skilled visa placements start to grow in the 80s. What was the kind of thinking and what were the politics of that issue at the time? So in the mid-1980s, there was a lot of public debate around the ethnic composition of the Australian immigration program, especially a lot of sort of cultural anxieties expressed around Asian migrants, um, especially Vietnamese migrants. And, you know, we hear about John Howard in 1988 making similar comments about, you know, the number of Asians being too much for the community to absorb. So it's very much like Pauline Hanson um, in the late 1990s. I and most Australians want our immigration policy policy radically reviewed and that of multiculturalism abolished. I believe we are in danger of being swamped by Asians. There was a lot of sort of, I guess, um, cultural concern surrounding um, the arrival of both refugees but also then, once the refugees had settled, then them petitioning for their family members to join them. But over time, especially since the late 1980s, the family reunification scheme has declined quite significantly. Um, And in its place, we see the skilled migration stream increased exponentially. Like it's, I would say, the major part of the Australian immigration program. So that was the cultural context and the politics surrounding it. And I guess the solution from the point of view of politicians with support of various business lobby groups was, you know, we have skilled shortages, you know, migrants make great workers. So um, let's provide avenues for migrants to fill these uh, skilled shortages. They bring a special value at the present time, the, the cultural diversity of so much of the business community of Australia is an indispensable element in winning new markets for us, particularly but not only in our own region. With the election of the John Howard government in 1996, I mean, the coalition governments, they're really they have been very welcoming of particular kinds of immigrants, you know, and mm. those that can demonstrate in a very mechanical sense, their contribution to the Australian economy. So they're seeing, you know, migrants as economic units, whether they be workers or investors or consumers. And so, you know, the Howard government really 
you know, was I think we can say is sort of a turning point of Australia's immigration program, the, a greater emphasis on skilled migration, really at the expense of all other types of migration. When now we just sort of take it for granted, it was, well, that's the only kind of migration there is. It's just, you know, it's skilled migration and really there are, there are alternatives. Would you say that the shift towards starting to increase that skilled migration program and move away from family reunification was somewhat a backlash to this humanitarian push to increase migration from countries like Vietnam in the late 70s? I mean, one of the things I've made a case for in my my work is that skilled migration is a very covert and effective way to talk about or to encourage migration of certain types of people. Skilled migration, I guess, is seen as less of a cultural threat, I guess, than other types Mm. of migration streams, especially humanitarian, but also family reunification as well. If you look at the demographics of people who come um, on skilled immigration visas, youth is very much uh, rewarded under the points system, as is education. So we're dealing with, a, you know, as I said before, an inherent sort of class bias and also a sort of a cultural bias towards individuals who have proficiency in English. Next, the many hoops that skilled migrants jump for a future in Australia. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. What was it that increasing the skilled migration category was designed to do for Australia in terms of the economy, for example? Yeah, so like many Western countries, uh, Australia is, you know, facing an ageing population. And this has been a concern for many decades. I'm sure you remember Peter Costello encouraging people to have more children, right? And that was one method. One for the, one for the country. One for the country, <laughs> yes. You'll get a large family supplement if you have one for the country. Uh, that gives an additional $250 uh, per annum to uh, families that have three children. So immigration is the other way to increase population. And despite all the, you know, government incentives to, for people to have more children, that really hasn't manifested. So immigration is really the only way to, I guess, to increase the tax base and also to ensure that the economy keeps growing. One of these skilled migrants contributing to Australia's economy is Marina Khan. So my name's Marina Khan. Um, I migrated to Australia as an international student uh, from Pakistan. I'm originally from Pakistan. I never really lived there. I grew up in the Middle East. In 2010, Marina moved to Melbourne. So I came here to study a diploma course in accounting. I did that for six months. But she quickly realised she wasn't interested in accounting and decided to change her studies to a diploma in social work. So it was a really exciting time. Though I did sort of miss my friends back home, I made new friends who were in the same kind of boat as me. Also, the, the kind of other other freedoms that you get, right? Like, I feel like it's the first time I had alcohol in my life. It's the first time I, it was just like, oh my God, I would never be able to do these things, you know, around my family or like, and that was very like, I guess when you're young and you're out exploring, it's quite exciting. 
Over the next few years, Marina decided that she wanted to further her studies and also try to obtain permanent residency or PR in Australia. Now, to qualify for a skilled migration visa, you have to have enough points, which you can get by proving things like your proficiency in English and your education and work experience in a profession if it's on a list of skilled occupations. So Marina started a Bachelor of Social Sciences and majored in Urban Studies, which at the time was on New South Wales's list of skilled occupations. But these lists and the requirements you need to fill for them are constantly changing. Six months before my course was coming to an end, the policy changed. The skill assessment criteria became stricter. So the work experience requirement was suddenly introduced by most skill assessment authorities across the board. I was devastated. I was very much about scrambling and going to different agents and seeing what options I have. And wherever I went, it was very much about do accounting, do accounting, leave this. That's the only subject matter where you've got a direct pathway to PR after you graduate. Like that's that was the advice that was given to me at the time. And I couldn't leave this with just six months left to go. I didn't want to do that. So it was pretty, pretty stressful. Marina was running out of time. She had six months to get the level of work experience she needed while studying to qualify for a skilled migration visa. It's very hard for me to go as a fresh graduate into urban planning and go to a town council and say to them that I need like an internship. And town councils have their own requirements. So they weren't willing to just hire anybody on a visa. They wanted somebody with permanent residency that they would actually even offer that kind of program too. So it was just a really bit, bit of a catch-22 situation that I found myself in that I couldn't, yeah, that I couldn't meet that criteria. That meant I had to study more. That meant I have to now do a master's degree. So Marina gave up on her goal of settling in Australia and went on to start her master's. She set her sights on moving to Canada instead. But then, out of the blue, she was invited to apply for a skilled migration visa in Australia. By pure coincidence, a skills shortage had opened up in New South Wales, not in urban planning or social science, which she was studying, but in social work, which she'd studied a decade earlier. I first felt it was a scam. I was like, this is not possible. How do they want? If this was the case, I've done this for like 10 years now. It's, it's, this is 2020 we're talking about, right? So this is not right. This, this can't be right. So I kind of verified and double checked and called all the numbers and made sure that I'd actually received a legitimate email because it was an auto-generated email. You've suddenly been selected in skill select and here's what we need. And here's here. And you have two weeks to submit all your, all your paperwork. If I couldn't supply everything in two weeks time, I would not get selected. And how does that sit with you having to do all of those things to qualify as, you know, a quote unquote skilled migrant? You just realize how arbitrary it all is. I got PR because of a diploma that I did 10 years ago, which was not even a serious thing. And the least serious I ever was in my life about studying, you know, I did a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD. And it's just a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Would you look back on this period as a period of limbo for your life? Oh, yeah, definitely a suspended living. Like it was like, you know, borrowed time. Like you're kind of literally un unmoored and you're suspended in space and you're just like, all right, where am I going to like, you know, I'm kind of hanging. So, yeah, it, it is definitely an unsettling time.
Rachel, has this shift towards skilled migration changed the composition or the kinds of countries where we're seeing people migrate to Australia from and also the class of people that we're willing to accept into Australia? Absolutely. I mean, of course, the biggest change I would say over the last 15 years has been the huge growth in the number of Indian nationals who have been coming to Australia making, you know, um, they've very effectively been able to enter as IT professionals or in finance and, you know, certainly their community has grown incredibly quickly. I think it's only second to British nationals now um, overall. So it's their growth, I think, will only continue. I think long term, I think the trend will be towards an establishment of Indian communities throughout Australia, not just in the big cities. Rachel says that even though the White Australia policy was officially scrapped in 1973, Australia's immigration policies, including its skilled migration program, is inherently discriminatory. So we may not be discriminating on the basis of nationality, but we're now discriminating on a whole other set of factors, you know, so it's often it's education, class, implicitly class, uh, language capacity, work experience. So we have seen, you know, I would say the, I guess the professionalization of immigration. Um, when you think back to the um, 1950s and 1960s, a lot of the migrants from Europe uh, were semi-skilled and they came to Australia and they found, you know, uh, decent work, uh, whether it be working in factories or in small shops. Um, and now it's interesting to note that um, the Australian government uh, under Albanese is talking about, well, we also need semi-skilled migration. You know, we don't just need nurses and uh, Engineers. teachers or other kinds of professionals. Yeah, you know, we actually need people who are willing to pick crops. Um, you know, this, this is essential work. And so I guess, you know, thinking about Australian immigration, we have to also put it in the context of transformations in the Australian economy away from an industrialised economy to a post-industrialised economy and what that means for the migration program. Mm. I think in your book, you also say that I'm quoting here, by the late 1980s, skilled immigrants had become a code word for politicians wishing to alter the ethnic composition of the immigrant intake while avoiding racialized language. Tell me more about that. I saw these references to uh, skilled uh, immigration as a, a way to cloak cultural anxieties, but there were those fears that politicians could um, could you know exploit. And talking about language, I think English, English language proficiency is another way, another sort of Trojan horse for uh, politicians or people in the sort of the public realm to invoke, I guess, cultural fears about um, immigration to Australia. And so you know nowadays, you know, for a skilled um, migrant, um, they will need to demonstrate some a degree of English language proficiency. And at the same time, when I think back to the 1950s and 1960s, you have all these migrants from Europe. Many of them didn't speak any English, you know, and they were okay. You know, they were able to find employment um, in various, you know, sectors and did incredibly well and their, their children did ex exceptionally well as, as well. If, if we continue on this trajectory, if these immigration trends continue, you know, the rise in skilled migration, skilled labour um, in rich countries like Australia, like where do you think it's all, where do you think it's heading? I really think, you know, given that uh, governments are so focused on migration for the national interest, like that's the mantra, you know, it's and you can't question that. And you can, I guess you can't expect politicians to do anything different. But I think as citizens, we need to ask, you know, I guess the harder questions and think about, well, actually, what's in the best interest of the world, not so much our country. And I would say, um, 
there's still this persistent fear of the other. And I was thinking about this before. I was like, okay, so if in the 1980s there was a lot of fear of new sort of Asian immigrants, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, it shifted towards Muslims. And we remember, of course, Mm -hmm. that time for those old enough that, you know, it was a very um, divisive debate surrounding Muslim migrants in Australia. And then I'm thinking a bit more recently about asylum seekers. And I mean, you know, if I want to end on a positive note, it would be that I think for right now, for the last few years, there's been I think, I guess, a break in the politicisation of immigration and I hope that the Albanese government can use that for policy reform. But I think it's important to always bear in mind with immigration, there are always costs. There's an always an adverse implication. And um, and at the, at the end of the day, we're dealing with people's lives as well and to be sort of mindful of, of that and to be, I guess, quite delicate with, you know, devising policy or devising recommendations around policy to be thinking of, you know, the, the human costs or the human impact uh, because, you know, we're dealing with people's lives. Humanity has been migrating since the beginning of time um, and finding a better place or a better climate or connecting with other human beings is part of a human existence. So it's just important to understand, I think, that people should just be treated as human beings and learn about their story first before passing judgment. That was Liliana Sanchez. Earlier, you also heard from Marina Khan and Dr. Rachel Stevens, a research fellow and contemporary refugee historian at the Australian Catholic University. Thanks also to the Settlement Council of Australia for their help with this episode. If you want to find out more about Australia's immigration history, The Guardian's data team, Nick Evershed, Josh Nicholas and Andy Ball today launched an incredible interactive feature which shows how the waves of immigration to Australia have changed since 1901. It's also a fascinating visual representation of major world conflicts, changes of government and the changing composition of different cultural groups in Australian society. I highly recommend you take a look. It's really great. We'll link to this on the Full Story website. And in some other big news, the music that you heard at the start of today's episode is our new theme music. It was developed by Joe Koning, who's one of our producers, and you'll hear this at the start of the show from now on. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria and myself. Additional production by Alison Chan. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producer for this episode was Gabrielle Jackson. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. <laughs>